And a very good evening to you. Welcome to The Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pitch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up a bit later on in the broadcast, we'll take a look at World Press Freedom Day 2016. And we also talk about road safety in South Africa. But for now, though, we begin with some of the stories that have made headlines in Africa and beyond with Mahadi Butelezi. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. Bringing you your news headlines from Africa and beyond. People with albinism face extinction in Malawi. In Burundi, funding for UN and AU human rights observers. SAAU to launch Africa Month celebrations. Good evening. Pope Francis has called for severe punishment for pedophiles after news details emerged in Italy of the 2014 death of a six-year-old girl who was allegedly thrown from an eight-story balcony by her abuser. The Pope's words came on Monday as he encouraged an Italian organization that fights all forms of abuse against minors. Father Shay Cullen is an Irish missionary priest and the founder of the Preda Foundation, People's Recovery Empowerment Development Assistance, a charitable organization that was founded in Olongapo City, Philippines in 1974. Prida has a number of purposes which include the promotion and protection of the dignity and the human rights of the Filipino people, with the main focus in assisting the sexuality exploited and abused children. Our greatest campaign was actually getting rid of these huge uh, U.S. military bases in the Philippines, which were the causes and of, of terrible human trafficking and enslavement of so many women and, and, and children in the sex bars everywhere. There's nothing else, no other job in the whole city. So I, when I discovered child prostitution rink back in 1982 in the city, I went public. I'm, I, you know, journalism is so important. We have radio and I write and do what I can. And I publicized it, became a big issue. We campaigned then to close the military bases, ridiculous as it seemed. We were like mosquito on an elephant uh, in those days. Uh, how could you challenge the uh, U.S. might of military? But we did. I mean, you know, they were threatening to deport me and give me a hard time. So I said I have to strike back uh, in the name of the poor. And anyway, yeah, I'll say it's a long story because it's a 10-year story, 1992. Two, we have a political decision about it in the Philippines due to, and I must say the church came on board for that campaign at the end, and uh, what they did come on, and we did get a vote to say no more U.S. military bases, or no more foreign bases. This work has also been at personal cost to you, hasn't it? Because you came under accusations of all kinds in the past. The sex mafia, of course, we're closing sex bars and clubs for the last uh, 20 years. So they come back and uh, I think I've had about 52 court cases charged against us. Everything, kidnapping. When we rescue children, it's kidnapping. When you bring them into uh, the children's home, you know, you're caused of abuse. Mostly in libel cases because we're speaking out all the time and one or two slander cases uh, we can see we've 
made progress, things can happen, change can come. People with albinism face systemic extinction in Malawi because of attacks and atrocities committed against them. A UN independent rights expert has warned around 10,000 people have the harmless condition which is characterized by light-colored skin caused by a lack of pigmentation. Daniel Johnson reports. UN Special Rapporteur Ikponwoza Ero warned that many people in Malawi live in constant fear of attack, sometimes from their own family. In addition to abductions, killings and mutilations, she said that the graves of people with albinism have also been dug up. The people involved in witchcraft will use this body parts in potions and in charms that can then be used for wealth, good luck success in business. In some incidences you hear that it has been used in the mines and in other countries anyway. They've been used in mines to identify gold. Our fishermen use it in the fishing business. There have been 65 reported attacks in Malawi since late 2014 and at least two more serious incidents during the UN experts visit which ended on Friday. Daniel Johnson, Geneva. More than 2.2 million U.S. dollars has been allocated to the African Union to support 32 human rights observers on the ground in Burundi, the United Nations said on Monday. The money will be transferred by the UN Peacebuilding Fund. The fund will also provide just over 300,000 U.S. dollars to the UN Human Rights Office in the country for training and joint missions with the AU. Here is UN spokesperson Stephanie Juderick. After communicating extensively with the government of Yemen delegation and meeting with the leaders of Ansar Allah and the General People's Congress uh, on Sunday afternoon, the Special Envoy confirmed he had received assurances from the parties regarding their commitment to resolving outstanding issues without convening joint sessions. UN political experts are currently reviewing the documents presented by the two delegations in order to identify common ground. He hopes to resume the talks and build on tangible progress achieved in recent days. Ethiopia is dealing with its worst drought in decades. Its crops failed last year, contributing to food shortages affecting at least 10 million of the East African country's 99 million people. Approximately 6 million of them are children and they're especially vulnerable to disease, hunger and thirst. UNICEF, the United Nations Children Fund, estimates 435,000 of them risk acute malnutrition. Marte van der Wolf reports. The Ethiopian government is working together with humanitarian organizations by providing food, especially for the 6 million children at risk of hunger, disease and lack of water. Due to malnutrition, due to hunger, the children are suspected to malnutrition that causes slow brain development and finally they damage their thinking abilities and they may aggravate, for example, the area. Over $800 million in emergency funding has been provided, but Ethiopia's government and the United Nations say a total of $1.4 billion is needed for this year. The bulk of those funds is to provide food. Receiving aid is the only way this mother can feed her six children. Because of the drought, we have nothing except the government's support. We have nothing at home. 
We have nothing to feed our children. We don't have drinking water. Food aid will be needed into 2017 here in Ethiopia and in other parts of eastern and southern Africa, also experiencing drought, believed to be caused by the periodic weather phenomenon El Niño. Marte van der Wolf in the Metahara district of Ethiopia. And finally, Tuesday, May 3rd, saw the launch of Africa Month celebrations at the Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site in Marubing. A joint cooperation between South Africa's Arts and Culture Department and the African Union. This year's Africa Month will be celebrated under the theme Building a Better Africa and a Better World for Peace and Friendship. Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tetwa said this is a positive step towards achieving the goals of the AU. Well, uh, it's, it's actually a, a, a government program, the entire government, because... Uh, it's uh, occasioned by the formation of the OAU on the 25th of May, 1963, um, which then is AU today. Uh, so we're celebrating what the OAU did. Uh, it went through the whole process of undermining uh, the 1884-85 Berlin Conference, which fragmented uh, Africa and, and, and actually decolonized the continent perhaps with the exception now of Western Sahara. Yes. But the, the OAU did a lot of work. Currently, we are under AU, uh, pursuing the AU Agenda 2063, a five-decade program, which mainly aims at the, the integration uh, of the continent, of, uh, of, of prosperity and peace and stability in the continent. So what we'll be doing uh, in this month, of uh, this month, will be having cross-pollination programs with the entire continent. At the center of, every, of all, all what we are doing is the African identity. Yeah. We are emphasizing what the, the AU has, 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 has raised over a period of time that we should seek for a better Africa and a better world. In our case in South Africa, we should reconnect with, with the continent. Stop this thing of visiting uh, elsewhere in the continent, come and say, I went to Africa last week, uh, coming from South Africa, and we're all Africans. And therefore, we should fight and work to strengthen for the prosperity of, 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 our, of our continent and for peace, of course. And these have been your news from Africa and beyond. Have yourselves a very good evening. I am Mahadi Butelezi. And that was Mahadi Butelezi bringing us up to date with some of the stories that have made headlines in Africa and beyond today. You're still listening to The Catholic View on Radio Veritas, 576 AM, at on 870 DSTV or Of course, you can also listen to us online. It's radioveritas.co.ca. And I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up next, we take a look at World Press Freedom Day 2016 and road safety in Africa. World Press Freedom Day was proclaimed by the UN General Assembly in December 1993. 
following the recommendation of UNESCO's General Conference. Since then, the 3rd of May, the anniversary of the Declaration of Uvinduk, is celebrated worldwide as World Press Freedom Day. It is an opportunity to celebrate the fundamental principles of press freedom, assess the state of press freedom throughout the world, defend the media from attacks on their independence, pay tribute to journalists who have lost their lives in the line of duty. The theme for this year's World Press Freedom Day is Access to Information and Fundamental Freedoms. A radio journalist from Azerbaijan is the winner of the 2016 UNESCO Guillermo Cano World Press Freedom Prize. Khadija Ismailova will not be on hand to receive the award when it is presented this Tuesday in Helsinki, Finland, as she is in jail on charges relating to abuse of power and tax evasion. The UN Human Rights High Commissioner has said that her trial allegedly failed to meet international standards. Ljana Kurovak chaired the international jury that selected Ms. Ismailova for the prize, which was created by the UN Cultural Agency and named in honor of a Colombian journalist who was assassinated in 1986. She talks to Dian Pen about this year's recipient and the need to continue fighting for a free and independent press worldwide. She is... Um a person uh, whom i really admire a lot she is such a brave woman first of all and then journalist uh, it is very difficult to be woman journalist in um, countries of new democracies or countries with uh, so many political problems as azerbaijan is and kadia ismailova is a brave investigative journalist who worked as a radio host for Radio Liberties Azerbaijan service also she is a member of the organized crime and corruption reporting project unfortunately miss ismailova who never stepped back from <laughs> any assignment as a journalist has experienced harassment as well uh, blackmails because of her work in december of 2014 she was detained and in September of 2015 she was sentenced to seven and a half years imprisonment of charges relating to abuse of power and tax evasion and uh, she is uh, at the moment in prison in Azerbaijan of course she won this prize which pays tribute to a free press tell us about the value of a free press actually it is a big value of course without free press without uh, freedom of journalist work we cannot have a free society that's uh, sound very simple but actually it is very complicated especially in such countries as uh, countries in new development of democracy or something like that and uh, over past years we witnessed how our colleagues worldwide have increasingly been targets of attacks threats imprisonment violence or denials of access to information and um, we have to know that uh, without free and independent press injustice abuse of power and violation of human rights can continue nonstop a society fearing for its own safety can easily be uh, being be controlled and um, has no voice 
to utter its uh, discontent nor provide alternatives. We have to fight for free information, for free access to information, and for free expression. That's the base for every democracy. You mentioned um, that we need the free press and journalists should be free to, to do their work. But as you also mentioned, it is dangerous. But how do we reconcile that? More and more, unfortunately, you can see the result that uh, every year the, uh, the number of killed, uh, murdered journalists uh, rose. And this is really something what uh, spread fears of our <laughs> profession. My students ask me very often, is it okay? to risk uh, our lives for freedom of media, for freedom of reporting. Of course it is. If you believe in journalism, if you, if you believe in the mission of journalism, because journalism is not just a work, it is mission. We uh, help people to see the truth and to fight for their basic human rights. It is more and more difficult even in well-developed uh, democracies. Uh, because uh, many corporations uh, or, or political circles are not happy when journalists are digging deep <laughs> and uh, uncovering so many problems and corruption, especially corruption. So how can we fight against that? We have to fight and we have to, I don't know how to say, to engage or to animate people, citizens, to help us. And what role do you think the United Nations has in this whole issue of the freedom of the press? The role of uh, UN is huge, first of all, because it raises awareness of importance of media freedom and importance of journalist work, free work. And this voice is spreading a lot of good messages that the journalists have to be supported and have to have environment to work freely. On the other hand, we as the journalists, we don't feel abandoned in struggling with the freedom of importing in our area in certain countries. Also Bosnia-Herzegovina, where I live also, we faced a lot of struggles fighting for truth or fighting for publishing truthful information every day. The South African National Roads Agency, Sanral, has warned motorists who have missed the 60% ETOL discount that they will pay the price. The offer ended at midnight Monday night. Sandral says over 300,000 ETOL defaulters in Gauteng took advantage of the discount on debt and that non-payers will be taken to court. I spoke to Shadow Minister of Transport, Manny De Freitas, about his take on Sandral's latest development. Well, it's a very controversial um, issue because um, uh, I believe, and as many people in Gauteng believe, that it was an unjust system, that it was imposed on uh, people of Gauteng without any consultation. And, uh, and now we have to basically cough up and pay uh, with kind of forced into it without um, being consulted at all. In fact, it's common knowledge that um, the total consultation phase, which Samuel Houston talking about, they did, in fact, consult. consult. Um, 
But what they don't say is that a total of only 62 submissions were were were, were made. Uh, so you know, out of out of a, a few million people in Gauteng, for for them to consider 62 submissions to be sufficient is laughable. So and it's so it's very concerning. Uh, also, you know, they although they may have followed the letter of the law in consulting on this uh, particular project, uh, they certainly haven't followed the spirit. Because um, as I, I questioned many times to Samuel officials, is that uh, you know placing an advert the size of a postage stamp um, on Christmas Day, for example, uh, doesn't cut it. it. It certainly meets the law, the nature of the law, but not the spirit. And the spirit of the law is that it should be uh, widely consulted. As many people as possible would see these adverts so they can have an opportunity to put in their um, opinion on the system. So now we're lumped to the system where people are... Are, are forced to pay, and quite likely many people are simply refusing to pay because they feel that they haven't been consulted. But more importantly, is most people can't afford to pay. It takes a great chunk out of people's pockets, particularly during these very tough economic times, when uh, when people can hardly afford the very basics. Um, and it's simply unfair. Uh, thirdly, and that is because you know we pay our taxes, and that's what taxes are for: is to pay for roads uh, that to be built and maintained. And now to be double taxed, which this is what it is, um, is really unfair. So it's going to be interesting because they've been threatening, um, they've been using all sorts of intimidatory uh, uh, practices in trying to get people to pay um, their bills. And so they've given a deadline uh, this week to, to everybody to pay. And if they don't pay, they will be summoned. Well, it's going to be interesting because I have inside information to believe that there are loopholes and they won't be able to muster the, the support in court if many of these summonses do go to court, which I have no doubt will, because many people won't be able to afford to pay uh, these bills. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. All right, so you take that uh, figures that have been announced by Sandral's talking about uh, over 300,000 e-toll defaulters in Gauteng that took advantage of the 60% discount, which ended midnight on Monday. So looking at these figures, analysts, for example, uh, from the um, organization Undoing Tax Abuse has come out and said that these figures are not uh, true, that they should actually Proof that they have uh, such an amount, such a, uh, an amount of people that came through. What's your take on these figures of 300,000 people? Well, it, this has been the problem all along in this project. You know, from the very beginning, Sanrel has been making all sorts of um, uh, claims and, and statements without substantiating uh, them or being transparent about it. So, for example, when the system was first launched, um, they made all sorts of claims with regard to the number of people that had bought e-tags and so forth. And when um, civil society organizations like ALTA and uh, the project, uh, Justice Project South Africa questioned them and said, well, come, come up for those figures and tell us how you got them. Give us proof how you got them. Samuel simply would not provide these of this information. And we have exactly a repeat here. Where they're, they're, again, using scare tactics, using big numbers, to scare people into think to saying uh, you know this is this is a big stick we're going to hit you over the head if you don't uh, comply, and this is not the way to deal in a democratic state how to deal with issues. Uh, you know one has to engage with the society, and um, and basically well it's it's too late now but I should have originally have um, have, have convinced and worked with the communities to 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 for them to agree to the system. You now can't force people to 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 pay these bills, and it will be very interesting. 
when, uh, when the numbers do come up, and also when people simply are not in a position to pay. What then? Are, are people going to be jailed for, for, for not paying a bill? Uh, you know, that's, that's going to be crazy. So, I, you know, it, we just watch and see what happens. But now turning to the road fatalities uh, in our, our South African roads, we have seen quite a number of accidents, especially this past weekend, where yes. over 30 people died just because of a simple long weekend. Government yes. says that annually about um, 14,000 people die annually. But other yes. analysts say that this is not the, real, uh, the reality when it comes to road fatalities, that there are more numbers actually. People end up going mm. to hospital and they die also due to road accidents. As a, as a shadow minister for, for transport, what's your take on the road safety in South Africa and the way the people are driving? Well, you're quite right about um, the figures being incorrect. The official figures from the department is about 14,000 annually. Uh, but those figures don't take into account, as you rightly said, uh, eventual deaths in hospitals. It doesn't take the morgue counts into account um, because those figures come out much later. So if, if, for example, um, the department had a proper system of statistics that they've kept record of these statistics, where the fatalities are happening, uh, what kind of deaths were taking place, uh, where, by whom, etc., um, we could then develop a proper road um, safety campaign. There is no road safety campaign. The last kind of vestiges of any kind of campaign was arrived alive, and that was many, many years under the leadership of Minister Dola Omar. So, you know, since then there's been no, no road safety campaign. And what I've been hammering year after year in Parliament, in the budget speech in particular, and I'll be doing it again next week, and that's to say we keep on doing, or the Ministry and the Road Traffic Management Corporation keep on doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. Um, they're not looking uh, at international practice. How do countries that have made it very successful, like Sweden and other countries, where they've been able to completely cut down uh, on road fatalities and deaths. Um, what are they doing right? What are the mechanisms uh, that have been used to then bring down the stuff? So it's not, it's not uh, news. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to do anything new. It's been done for us. The hard work, the hard research has been done. And one of the first steps is to obtain and collate all this, these statistics and start seeing where are the hotspots, where are these things happening, and then to make sure there's proper law enforcement and monitoring. Um, you know, so I would say we start with the very basics, and those basics aren't being done. That's the problem. You know, stopping people on the highway, um, you know, to check if they've got their license or if their vehicle is licensed up to date is not a road safety campaign. Um, so, you know, road safety starts with, with, with children as young as toddlers and teaching them uh, what the rules of the road are and how to operate and respect the roads and the, the, the rules. Um, and unfortunately, government simply isn't doing that because it's, it's hard work. They're looking for quick fixes and they're coming up with things like um, speed and all that kind of thing. And that, that certainly is a factor. But uh, how is it that speed is such an important factor that you have in Germany, for example, the Autobahn, which has no speed limit, and yet there are no fatalities and deaths on those roads? It's because it goes deeper. It goes to education. It goes to information and to, to making sure that um, the, the public is knows that there is a, a police force that is watching, a traffic police force that is watching, and making sure that everyone is compliant. So it's a multifaceted approach, and unfortunately, um, government doesn't seem to get us uh, to, to date. So you would say that we need to implement more road safety campaigns. That's what you'd say. 
Well, we know we need to implement a, we need to implement a road safety campaign. There is no road safety campaign. My my point is that you know stopping uh, uh, vehicles um, on, the, on on at a particular spot and checking for their licenses and checking for their uh, you know if their vehicle is, is licensed um, is very one dimensional. That's not a road safety campaign. That's just simply checking if you're licensed or not. So you, we need to implement a proper whole holistic multifaceted road safety campaign like the, the many that exist throughout the world and have shown to work and that's what we need to do we don't have to go and reinvent the wheel like the minister is trying to do by creating new councils to to look into it and so forth we don't need to do that the the, the, the research and so forth is, is available internationally we need to then just adapt it to our circumstances and actually run it so my point is there is no road safety campaign uh, even though they may be calling it so um, my argument is if there was a proper road safety, safety campaign, we'd be seeing an improvement in those 14,000 deaths. We'd be seeing the deaths going down, which means whatever they're doing isn't working. And that's my point I keep on making. Many of the freighters, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The main thing is for people just to drive carefully and to watch themselves on the road, drive carefully, and to watch other people as well, because sometimes you have people who are, uh, who are driving who are not as cautious as we are, and we need to be aware of them as well so that we avoid any uh, crashes. Thank you. Thank you very much for your Thank time. Thank you so much. And that was Shadow Minister of Transport, Manny Defreitas, talking to us about e-tolls and road safety in South Africa. That brings me up to time. This has been your Tuesday's edition of the Catholic View on Radio Veritas. Thank you so much for listening. Should you wish to get in touch with me, feel free to send me an email, shayla at radioveritas.co.za. Catholic View is a program produced and presented by Shayla Pirsch for Radio Veritas. Until tomorrow, at the same time, God bless you and ciao, ciao.